Let me introduce you guys to Jordan. Jordan grew up in the church and he put his faith in Jesus Christ when he was just a little boy. However, with the onset of puberty in sixth grade, he realized that he was different from his friends, that he was attracted to people of the same sex, not the opposite sex. This was really scary for Jordan. He didn't understand it. And going through high school, he wrestled with this, but being a Christian, he also wrestled with the scriptures. And he came to the conclusion that God does not allow him to act on his attractions. So out of allegiance to Christ and his word, he never touched another man romantically. When he went into college, he started volunteering at a youth group, and he figured it would be honoring for the leadership team of this church to know the truth about his sexuality. So he set up an appointment with the elder board, and when that day came, he was, he was very nervous. And he walked into the, into the conference room, and his hands were shaking and dripping with sweat, and he decided he just had to shoot straight. And he told the elder board, I'm same-sex attracted. I'm attracted to men. Silence. And then they started speaking. I thought he was a Christian. Jordan, when did you decide this? Jordan, you know what God says about homosexuality. He says it's a sin. Jordan, we can't condone someone with your lifestyle. And then the real kicker, Jordan, what about our kids? We can't have you working with our kids. And so by the end of this rather brief meeting, Jordan felt humiliated and dehumanized. And the last thing he remembers that night was going into his car, locking the door, white-knuckling his steering wheel and screaming his pain away. Because he was yet another gay person who was ostracized by the church. If you're new here this morning, my name is John Wilson. I'm the children's pastor here at Element Church. I'm super thankful that you've chosen to join us, whether here in the auditorium or on video. Uh, uh, We are three weeks into a four-week sermon series called Grace and Truth, a conversation about faith, sexuality, and gender. During the month of February, we have intentionally engaged this discussion, talking about how we as a church ought to respond to LGBT people. And we want to stand with both of our feet firmly planted on the relevant truth of God's word, but also the radical grace that we see exemplified in Jesus Christ. Grace and truth, truth and grace. Now, if you haven't heard the other sermons, I would really encourage you to go online to our website, elementchurch.life, and look those up. In the first week, Pastor Jeff kicked us off in this conversation talking about this grace-truth posture that Jesus himself emulated. And then last week, Pastor Brendan shared with us how we as a church can best love those who struggle with their gender identity. Today, we're going to talk specifically about faith and sexuality or sexual identity. And we're going to be asking ourselves this question. What is the relationship between being gay and the Christian faith? What is the relationship between being gay and the Christian faith. Now, just a side note before we start, when I use the word gay, I'm using it as a catch-all to encompass anyone who might experience same-sex attraction. So these are people who might identify as gay, lesbian, bisexual, or same-sex attracted. To be very clear, by gay, I do not mean any sort of action. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean attraction regardless of action. And I want us to keep that in mind as we continue through this. 
Now, over the last two sermons, we've been very clear that we believe that God is calling us as a church to stand in what we've been calling the messy middle or side B, as it's sometimes called. The position that tries to stand firmly on grace and truth, balancing those two pieces. Now, today I'm going to unpack the scriptural foundation of our side B beliefs, but I think even more importantly, I want to talk even more about how we as a church can posture ourselves to best love LGBT people. So I'm going to start by giving us like a 10,000-foot fly overview of the relevant scripture passages for this topic. And I just want to give a disclaimer up front. I'm going to do a really slipshod job at this. Because like entire books have been written on this topic, and I'm going to try and summarize it in like 10 minutes. So I'm skipping over a bunch of historical and cultural and literary background that'd be super helpful for us to understand. I'm just going to skip it. And so if, if this is a conversation that's really interesting to you, if you want to dive deeper into these passages, I would encourage you to go into the lobby at the store and pick up a copy of this book. It's called People to be Loved, Why Homosexuality is Not Just an Issue by Dr. Preston Sprinkle. And he goes in-depth in these passages we're going to talk about today, uh, unpacking them more from a side B perspective. Very, very helpful book. Uh, but right now, we're just going to barely skim the top. So we're just going to uh, hop right in, um, in Genesis chapter 2, which might really seem like an odd place to start, but bear with me. When we hop in the story, God had just finished all of creation. And Adam is alone in the Garden of Eden, and up to this point, God has said everything is good, even very good. But when we get to chapter 2, verse 18, God's tone changes, and it says this, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. I will make a helper suitable for him. These two words, helper, suitable, in Hebrew are azer, konegdo. That first word, azer, is super interesting. I don't have enough time to go into it right now, but I will leave you with this nugget. Most often in the Old Testament, azer refers to God as our help. It's a strong, powerful help. So husbands, consider that on your way home today. But it's the second word, konegdo, that I really want to focus our attention on. It's a combination of the two Hebrew prepositions, ki, which means like or as, and neged, which means opposite or against. And our English translation, suitable, doesn't quite capture all that's going on in this word. What God is saying is that Adam needs someone who is like Adam, but also someone who is unlike Adam. And as the story goes, God brings all the animals to Adam, and no one is found to be konegdo to him. So then God creates Eve, and Eve is found to be konegdo in that she is like Adam, human, not an animal, but she is unlike Adam in that she's female, not male. And after Eve is created, the story goes on to say this in verse 24, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And this is a passage we hear read at weddings a lot. And it's here at the very beginning of the world that we see God's intent and design for marriage. It takes two people who are konegdo to each other. Similar, human, but different, male and female. And this is the foundation of what we have been calling the historic Christian sexual ethic. That marriage is intended for two sexually different people, man and woman, and that any sex or sexual activity is intended for and blessed only in that union. 
the foundation of this comes from Genesis chapter 2. But so far, we haven't even discussed homosexuality. And so what does the Bible say about gay relationships? And this brings us to the famous clobber passages. Ask any gay person, they can probably list off some or most of these passages. And that's because these passages have been used to beat, mock, dehumanize, abuse, condemn, and otherwise hurt gay people. Clobber passages. And if you're here today and you don't call yourself a Christian, maybe that's one of the reasons why. Gay or straight, you've seen the way that church people have mistreated LGBT people, and you want nothing to do with a faith that treats people that way. And I get it. I will be the first one to say the church has done a poor job historically loving gay people the way God loves gay people. And so if, if, if you are here today and you or a loved one have, have been hurt by the church on the basis of sexuality, I want to apologize to you on behalf of the church. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the way that God's life-giving word has been used to clobber you. I'm sorry for the way that the church has put up barriers for you to experience the overwhelming, reckless love of God. I'm sorry. But I am also going to be honest. These passages are hard. Just reading them, they sound ugly. But if we really want to engage this conversation and see what Scripture says, we got to stare these passages in the face. So I'm asking you guys to offer me some grace as I try to determine what these passages mean and walk through these clobber passages. The first two we will look at come from the book of Leviticus, where it says this. First, in 1822, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. And then 2013, if a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. And like I said, those are, those are some hard passages. But they do not permit male gay sex. And to be fair, in the time when this was written, most gay sex was exploitative. Masters raping their slaves or victors in war raping those whom they had conquered. But there is evidence of mutual same-sex intercourse. And looking at the second passage specifically, it speaks equally against both partners in the sex act. And that tells us that the act was mutual because God does not condemn the victims of rape, gay or straight. And so the author of Leviticus speaks against gay sex in broad enough terms to encompass both the perpetrator and exploitative acts and both parties in mutual acts. But there is an important distinction that should be made about what this passage does not say. This passage prohibits gay action, but it does not condemn gay attraction. And we'll circle back to that. So we're actually going to move on to the New Testament now. There are three passages that specifically mention homosexuality. Romans 1, 26 through 27 is the first. And in talking about how all people, all people, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Paul writes, Even their women exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. 
Again, I'm breezing over a lot of historical and cultural background knowledge that helps us understand this passage rightly. But this passage speaks against male and female, same-sex, sex. And that phrase, one another, again, helps us to know that this includes the mutual acts as well as the exploitative acts that were very common in ancient Rome. But again, I will also note this passage prohibits gay action, not gay attraction. And the next two passages we'll read together. First is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, where it says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then there's 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. As I've warned, again, glossing over a lot of information, but in both of these passages, Paul does something really interesting in the original Greek, the the language that this was written in. It seems that Paul actually makes up his own word to refer to male same-sex intercourse. This is the first time we've ever seen this word show up in all of the Greek writings that we have existing to this day. It's this really interesting word called arsenikoitai, and it's a compound word of the Greek words for man and bed. Now, just standing by itself, that wouldn't naturally clue us on that it's talking about homosexuality until we look back at the Leviticus passages we just discussed earlier. You see, in the Greek translation of those two Leviticus passages, the Greek translation that Paul would have been very familiar with, the words man and bed appear right next to each other in those Leviticus passages that speak against gay sex. So it seems like Paul smashes these two words together to invent a new word that heralds back to the Old Testament prohibition on same-sex relationships, both mutual and exploitative. If Paul only wanted to talk about exploitative acts, he had a whole host of words that he could have used. But since he wanted to incorporate mutual acts as well, he coined his own term that includes both. Very interesting word. But as I have been saying, the prohibition is on gay sexual action, not attraction. And there is one more thing I want to point out about these passages. Gay sex is not the only thing Paul speaks against here. In these three New Testament passages, he also calls out the wicked evil, greedy, envious, deceitful, and malicious, murderers, thieves, gossips, adulterers, liars, slanderers, swindlers, and slave traders. He speaks against malice and mercilessness, idolatry, and disobeying one's parents, and he calls out all sexual immorality, which includes any sexual sin a straight person might struggle with, lust, pornography, masturbation, premarital sex, extramarital sex, fornication. It's all there. And so if we are ever going to use these passages to tell someone not to have gay sex, let's at least be consistent and bring our own sin to light first. Because as we read these passages, it forces us us to take our fingers of condemnation and point them back in on ourselves. We all stand condemned by Paul's words here. 
Now, those are all the relevant passages on this topic. Some of you might be thinking, wait, what about the story of Sodom in Genesis 19? That story is about gang rape, and that's not relevant to this conversation. But there is definitely a bunch of information that we just covered there. So I want to sum up what we believe in this side B middle way. God created marriage to be between one man and one woman for life. And sex is meant solely for that relationship. Therefore, the Bible consistently prohibits any sexual activity that is not in line with God's design. This includes, but is certainly not limited to, gay sex. But the Bible never condemns people simply for being same-sex attracted. It is not a sin to experience attraction to people of the same sex. Here's the thing. Remember Jordan, whom we met earlier? This is exactly what he believes. After wrestling with these clobber passages in his heart, he concluded that God does not allow him to act on his attractions, but neither does God condemn him because of his attractions. And so Jordan, a gay man, is living in this messy middle. And if we were to ask him the question that we're asking ourselves today, what is the relationship between being gay and the Christian faith? Jordan would say they're not exclusive. They can be held together. He can be gay and Christian, even though his faith does not permit him to act on his attractions. So how could the church have responded to Jordan? How could the church respond to any gay person? And so far this morning, we've been focusing a lot on on the truth side of the scale. I'm going to change directions here and focus on the grace side. And to do that, I want to share another story with you. This is my friend, uh, we'll call him Sam, and he's actually a very close friend of mine. So I'm I'm going to share his story in some detail here. Like Jordan, Sam grew up in the church, loving Christian family. He was at church every Wednesday and Sunday, and he put his faith in Christ when he was just a little boy. But then on the onset of puberty, he realized in horror that he was attracted to men, not women. And having grown up in the church, he had this blanket understanding that homosexuality is wrong. So he did everything in his power to stifle his attractions and to somehow produce the appropriate opposite sex attractions. And as he went through high school, his prayers for God to change him grew more and more desperate. But the attractions persisted. And because of this, Sam felt dirty and unlovable and repulsive to God. Yet... At the same time, Sam also felt like God was calling him to ministry. And so after graduating high school, Sam went to a Christian university to study to become a pastor. And he figured that his his new pursuit of ministry, God would reward him by taking away his attractions, but the attractions still persisted. So by the end of his freshman year, he finally admitted to himself in anger and pain and confusion, I am gay. But nobody could know the secret. Oh no, no one could find out, so Sam stuffed it down deep. And over the next three years, he spiraled into deeper and deeper depression as he wrestled with the reality of his attractions. And by his senior year, he had lost all hope that there could ever be a future for him as a gay Christian. And so every night, he went to bed praying that he would not wake up in the morning. 
But in the morning when he did wake up, just as alive and depressed and gay as ever, Sam began seeking out ways to end his own life because he figured that death had to be better than the pain of simply being him. You see, like Jordan, Sam had also wrestled with these passages. And as much as he wanted the scriptures to say something else, he couldn't get around the fact that to follow God meant that he, could, he had to deny his attractions. And he wanted to follow God, so he, he, had always, uh, he had never touched another man romantically out of allegiance to Christ. But there in the midst of his depression, a new thought came to mind. Whoever said the Bible is true? Whoever said any of this, God, Christianity, Jesus, is right. Why do I have to believe this? And so suddenly Sam wasn't just wrestling with his sexual identity. He was wrestling with the very core of his faith identity. And Sam, who was a worship pastor at the time, would lead his congregations to praise God on Sunday mornings. But on Sunday nights, he would lie awake in his bed, wondering if this God even existed. He wanted out. But he found deep inside him, he couldn't deny this Jesus he had loved ever since he was a little boy. This Jesus who had walked beside him in the years and years of depression. This Jesus who always offered the sliver of hope necessary to go one more day. And so frustrated, angry, and confused, Sam just simply cried out, God, I hate you but I will follow you because I don't know another way. And God heard that prayer. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit came to Sam and started peeling back the layers and layers of shame that had always made him feel so unlovable to God. And it was a many months long journey and it was hard and it took work, but Finally, Sam, months later, came to the conclusion that his faith was restored, and he understood that God loved him, and he loved God, and he had fully committed himself to following Christ in singleness, if that's what Christ required of him. And during this time, Sam also applied for a job as an assistant pastor at a church. And while he was going through the interview process, he kept his sexuality a secret, While he no longer believed that God condemned him for being gay, he was worried that the church would. And this church actually hired him, and he started on staff with with his secret safely tucked away in his back pocket. But a couple months in, he felt like God was stirring in his heart to tell his senior pastor. And there was no way he was going to do that. That was terrifying. That That was scary. He might be rejected. That was what he had always feared his whole life but he also wanted to be obedient to God. And so not knowing why, Sam set up the appointment and then he walked into his his pastor's office and he was shaking as a leaf and the sweat dripped down his sides as he said to his pastor in an uncertain voice, I'm gay. And his pastor received him in love. He assured him that he was safe. And so when Sam left that conversation, he didn't have to scream away his pain like Jordan. No, he felt light and love because he had been received in grace and truth. And so with a newfound confidence, Sam decided it was time to tell more people. 
And over the following months, he told the other pastors on staff and his friends and his family and the elder board of his church. And each time, rather than receiving the rejection he had always feared, he was met with grace and truth. And so together with the other pastors on staff, they decided it was time to tell the entire church. The entire church. And this is a big deal. So they prepared for months. They prayed and they fasted. And the day finally came when Sam would get up before his congregation and utter those truthful but terrifying words, I'm gay. And in his heart of hearts, he wanted to know, would his church receive him in grace and truth? Would his church receive him? Actually, let me be more specific. Would Element Church receive him in grace and truth? Because you see, Sam's story, it's my story. This chair, it's my chair. Element Church, I'm gay. And that's, that's a big deal. Yes, I might be attracted to men, but out of obedience to Christ, I am choosing to walk in singleness. Because... awesome. (laughs) I love you guys too. Yes, I was that 12-year-old boy who was terrified to realize this about himself. I was that teenager who began wrestling with depression as he struggled how to hold his faith and sexuality in tension, despairing of life itself. But here's the more important piece that I want you guys to know about me. I'm the one who fell in love with a great and mighty Savior. And any attraction I might have to any man in general cannot compare to the love I have for Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one man who gave himself up for me. And it is out of allegiance to this Jesus, this Jesus who walked beside me in that depression, this Jesus who redeems my brokenness, this Jesus who loves me, that I joyfully and gladly abandon all to follow him. This is my story. In church, today we, <laughs> we're at a fork in the road. We've got two options on how we can respond. I have an idea about how we're actually going to respond, so I, I almost feel like I don't need to mention the first option. <laughs> but the first option is to fold our arms, to create further barriers for LGBT people to experience the love of God. And the second option is to open up our arms wide and to show LGBT people the love that God has for them. And I'm confident that this is the posture we are going to walk in. This is the posture I've seen at Element Church since my first day here. It's the posture that gave me the confidence to know I would be safe to stand up before you this morning and share my testimony of God's goodness in my life. 
And for many of you guys, this was the posture that made Element Church feel like home to you. Because when you were in that parking lot, you felt dirty and unlovable. But when you walked in these doors, you were met with open arms that says, we love you. Come follow Christ with us. This is the church I know that we are going to be because God is giving us the opportunity to, to lead the way, to write a new chapter in church history where the church is known for how much it loves gay people. Because church, I could line up this stage with chair upon chair representing the stories of gay Christians whom I am honored to call my friends. And I envision Element Church being a place where people like, like Seth or Meg or, or Pete or Paul or Paul Anthony or Jackie or Sarah or JD or Colton or Mike or Bill or Amy could get in front of us and say, I'm gay. And our response is, we love you. Come follow Christ with us. This is the church that we are automatically. But I'm also going to be honest, church, this isn't going to be easy for us. Because when, when the rubber of our theology meets the road of reality, we're going to see just how messy this messy middle way is. Because what we believe, the, the historical Christian sexual ethics side B, it doesn't make room for gay relationships. And so we believe, and I, I believe this, that gay people, that I, need to follow Christ in singleness or, if it be God's will, in opposite sex marriage. Now, I, I will iterate for you again, I'm choosing to follow Christ in singleness. And I know for many people here that, that sounds unfair. That sounds harsh. You don't like it. It sounds like we're calling gay people to such a heavy cross. And, and I will admit, there are days that my own peculiar cross is heavy. There are hard days. But let me read for you the words of my friend Greg Coles in his book, Single Gay Christian, where he says this. Maybe the problem isn't that gay Christians have received an impossible task. Maybe the problem is that so many straight Christians have given themselves a task that is too easy. A cross that's too bearable. So let me read for you the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. In this passage, Jesus doesn't say if a gay person wants to be my disciple or if an LGBT person wants to be my disciple. No, he says, whoever Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And you know where Jesus leads? He goes straight up the hill called Mount Calvary where he dies on his cross. And he's inviting you and me to do the same. This, this is the gospel we don't preach too much at church because we want all the benefits of salvation. We want eternal life. We want oneness with the Father. We want to be adopted into the family of God, but we don't want the cost because the cost is our very lives. But here's the, here's the truth. Jesus died on his cross for us so we can die on our cross for him. Jesus gave himself up for us so we can give ourselves up for him. And so whoever, gay or straight, 
wants to be Christ's disciple must deny themselves, yes, even their sexual urges and desires, and take up their cross and follow him and die to our sins. To follow Christ is to be crucified. But here's the good news. On the other side of the crucifixion is a resurrection. Because yes, Jesus died on his cross, but he did not stay dead. No, three days later, he rose victoriously from the grave. So we know that if we give ourselves up for him, so too we will be raised to newness of life, filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered to do his good and pleasing will here, today, and now. So we don't just follow Christ to his crucifixion. We're going all the way to the resurrection. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel. Now, as a same-sex attracted follower of Christ, there are some difficulties in this. I mean, you guys heard my story. There's some real darkness, some real pain. And so I want to take this moment now to speak to anybody in the room who identifies as LGBT+. I don't care what you believe, actually, in that. Side A, side B, side X, Christian, non-Christian. I'm just talking to you if you are gay, because I see you. I see you. I see you. I know what it's like to be that teenager in the pew, terrified for how people would respond to you if only they knew this secret about you. I know what it's like to be on the receiving end of those clobber passages. And I know that terror of telling somebody for the first time or for the 50th time I'm gay. And I know those feelings of depression and shame and loneliness and anger and confusion and grief and that feeling of being inherently unacceptable to God. And so if that is you, if you are gay, I have one message for you this morning. And maybe to hear this message, this, your sermon, maybe you need to forget everything else I've said so far. So forget the clobber passages, forget the historical Christian sexual ethic, forget side B, and hear this. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. And I'm not going to get tired of saying it. Because Jesus loves LGBT people so much that he came down to earth and he gave himself up for gay people so that they might be brought into the family of God. And no matter how much the church has pushed you away in the past, right now, Jesus's arms are open wide, inviting you to come and experience the unconditional love that he has for you. Because Jesus loves gay people. And you don't have to do this alone. So if, if you are here today and you're gay, as I said, I understand. And so I want to be here for you. My, my email address is here on the screens, pastorjohnatelementchurch.life. Really easy to remember, so you don't have to write it down if you don't want to. But shoot me an email. 
I, I, want, I want to get to know you. I'd love to sit down with you, ha- have coffee with you, get to hear your story. And most of all, I want to love you and follow Christ with you. I want to follow Christ. Because church, we've been talking, I've been talking about this, this pain, this pain that comes sometimes if, you, if you're a same-sex attracted follower of Christ. But I want you to know that there is great joy. Because I have no greater joy than to follow Jesus. And that's what I want to close on here today. I want to follow Jesus. So I'm going to invite the band back on stage. And they're going to lead us in a closing song that I've asked Brielle to arrange for us. And as they prepare, I just want to say a couple words. To follow Jesus requires everything from every one of us. There are things that we want to hold back. Because yes, it's true that in Christ we have this new life, this life to the fullest. But that doesn't negate the fact that dying to sin and self is hard. And so there there are people in here today that are holding on to things. Yes, you want to be Christ's disciple, but you have this thing that's holding you back. And it, it might be a painful process to get rid of that, to let go of that, and to follow Jesus. It was during the time when I was the worship pastor who had lost his faith that I came across this song that we're about to sing. I was preparing for Sunday morning worship and flipping through a hymnal because we were one of those churches. And I came across this hymn called Go to Dark Gethsemane. And I'd never heard it before. And so I was reading through it and its words, its words were so powerful to me. Because in this hymn, it talks about this Jesus who spends the night in the garden asking for the Father to take this cup away from him, but who decides to do the Father's will anyway. And he goes and he dies on his cross. And the song invites us to do the same, to spend that night in the garden, to wrestle, to pray, and to follow Christ bearing the cross. But the song also talks about the resurrection, about the empty tomb, and about this new life that Jesus was raised to and invites us to experience that same life to the fullest. Because that's what Jesus wants us to have. That's what he wants us to experience in following him. And these words gave me hope in that season. They gave me hope that it was worth it to follow Christ. And this is my prayer for you guys, that we would all abandon everything to follow Jesus. Because he's waiting for us. He has new life available for us. And so the band is going gonna, is gonna to play this song. And afterwards, Pastor Jeff is going to come up and give some concluding remarks. But until then, take the words of this song and make them your prayer as you commit yourself to denying yourself, picking up your cross, and following Christ not just to his crucifixion, but all the way to the resurrection. Yeah.
I've never been more proud of our church than today, ever. There's a cost for us all, and that cost is high. John preached the truth today that we're called to die to ourselves, but I love what he said. He didn't just call us to die. He called us to a resurrection. He called us to live and I want you to know, one of John's biggest fears with this message was that he would be made the star. And he said, Jesus is the star of the story. So let's not forget that. I'm honored and proud to stand with John. I'm honored to stand as a church with John and with all people. But Jesus is the star of the story. Okay? And we will continue to point people to him. Because he is the only one that can do for people what he did for someone like John and for someone like me, okay? Hey, if you're here and you need prayer for something, if this message stirred something in you or whatever, there's a prayer team all the way in the back. They'd love to pray with you for whatever need you have. If you are new here, uh, great Sunday to start on. Uh, we'd love to see you in the living room before you go. That'd be awesome. And uh, myself, all of our pastors will be out in the lobby. If, if you got questions, this could create some questions. I'll uh, be glad to answer them for you. Uh, I love you guys so much. Thank you for being an amazing church. We're doing this next week again, one more time. Love you. You're dismissed.